to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Great worship. Welcome to Roswell Presbyterian Church. It's a joy to be in worship with you this morning. I want to thank everybody who came out last night, made the mission auction such a success. We had a stretch goal of $50,000. We far exceeded that. We've got to take into account all of our expenses and everything, but we've raised a ton of money for our mission partners, really making a difference here in the Roswell, North Metro Atlanta area and around the world. I want to thank everyone who came out, who made donations, who volunteered, and especially those who uh, purchased items uh, and raised all this money. Today we're continuing our Lenten sermon series on the spiritual practices that lead to spiritual growth. We've looked at prayer and meditation, Last week, Lindsay gave a fantastic sermon on the spiritual practice of fasting. And I want you to know that I would never ask one of our other pastors to preach on a text or a topic that I myself would not be willing to preach on, okay? Um, (laughs) But the thing is, I assign particular passages because I know what I already think about this passage. I want to know what they think. And it was so great last week to get Lindsay's perspective on fasting um, and to see kind of a fresh perspective. So if you missed it, I would encourage you to go listen on the church podcast or on the website for a great, a great message. This morning, we're going to study, well, we're going to look at the spiritual practice of study, the life of the mind, intellectual reflection. And as we've been doing all throughout Lent, on the Monday following that sermon, I talk with an expert kind of in that field in our Closing the Distance podcast. And you can watch on Facebook Live at noon or you can check out the audio on our podcast or it's always available on the website. But tomorrow I'm gonna have really privilege to talk to Dr. Lerone Martin. He's a professor of religion, but he was just now the newest um, director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Institute at Stanford University. And basically they've projected about 14 volumes of King's work And about seven have already been published, edited down, all that. And so he's responsible for doing the next seven. So I talked to him a little bit about that process, about the ministry of King, uh, kind of our friendship. It's really fun. Uh, I would invite you to kind of check that out uh, tomorrow uh, for Closing the Distance. Today our text comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It tells a story when a legal scholar comes up to Jesus and asks him what the most important commandment is. Our text is Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Let's open our minds, our hearts, and our ears to hear the word of the Lord. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Gracious, loving God, we ask that in the next few moments you might be our teacher, that you might teach us about this spiritual practice of study, about intellectual reflection, about the life of the mind. Lord, we pray that we might have an encounter with you that will lead to our spiritual growth. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I am here because of a question I couldn't answer. As some of you know, I was a business major in college. But during my senior year, I interned at a Presbyterian church in Seattle, Washington. It was a college ministry. And during that year, I worked with undergrads, seekers often, who had questions for me. One question, they would ask, why does a good and all-powerful God let bad things happen to good people? Yes, where does the Bible come from? Why are there so many religions in the world? How do we relate the concepts of love and justice together? I was obsessed with these questions and really felt like I could not move on with my life unless I answered them. And so I applied to Princeton Theological Seminary. I felt like it was the place where I could hear the widest range of answers to my questions. To my surprise, and many others' surprise, they let me in. I was so intimidated that I deferred for two years. And then finally they sent me a letter. They said, if you don't matriculate this year, you're going to have to reapply. So I went. But this is often how the intellectual, spiritual journey begins. We have questions, and we seek answers to those questions. And the most important questions we can ask are spiritual questions. Why am I here? Where am I going? What should my life be about between the womb and the tomb? These are the questions that really matter because they organize, direct, and orient the rest of our lives. And in our text today, a lawyer asks Jesus a spiritual question. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? The lawyer is asking Jesus, what is of supreme importance to God? What should I care about most in my life? What does God think is most important? I have to stop and ask, do you think and ask these questions? Do we step back from our life and examine what our lives are about? Do we think about what's most important? Honestly, in our world, I think most people fail to ask these questions. We live in a superficial society. People care about the surface of things. We care about the glitz and the glamour. We focus in on the latest fad. We don't want to dig in, think hard, or wrestle with complexity. We want to move in, flip the channel, change the reel, go back to spiritual sleep. I mean, people can tell you who Rihanna is dating, but they can't tell you what love is. People know what the next HBO series coming up is, but they don't know 
what story their very life is about. People will gamble on all sorts of sporting events, but they don't know what's worth risking their lives for. As Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I wonder if there is so much hopelessness and despair in our world because we fail to live an examined life. We fail to stop and reflect. We fail to live a life of the mind. The, unexam- the opposite of an unexamined life, an examined life, a life of study. Study is the spiritual practice and embrace of the life of the mind. It's the careful and orderly reflection on what matters in life. It's what's The spiritual teacher Richard Foster calls in inward discipline. But how can we come? How can we come to live a life of the mind spiritually? Now, you may not know this, but Seattle, Washington is a long way away from New Jersey. (laughs) And the day finally came for me to move to school. So I packed up all my belongings into my car and drove across the United States to Princeton Seminary to answer my questions. And like many graduate students, I had to get a job. So so I thought it was fitting to get a job at the seminary library. This is one of the biggest theological seminaries in the world. On my first day of work, I go to the head librarian And I ask her, I say, what would you like me to do today? And she says, you see that rack of books? And I look over, and there's all these books just piled on. This little rack, she says, take it down to the basement and reshelve them. I said, okay. So this thing, I push it onto this rickety elevator. And it descends into the basement of the seminary library. The door is open, and it's pitch black. And so I push the little rack and cart forward and I step into the darkness. And I'm looking for the light switch. And I fumble around on the wall and finally I find it and I hit it up. The lights come on. It was very dramatic. As my eyes adjust to the light, all I can see are books. From floor to ceiling, as far as the eye can see, all I can see are books, and I go into existential shock. Spiritually, standing in that basement library, I feel not much different than that lawyer who comes to Jesus and asks him that question. What is the greatest commandment? See, the... Lawyer steps forward with a question about the law of Moses, which is also called the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jewish scholars tell us that there are about 613 commandments in the Torah. That's a lot of commandments. So which ones are more important? Well, this lawyer would have been a Pharisee, and they believed that all these commandments came from God. Therefore, all the commandments were of equal importance. This is why in him asking his question, he's testing Jesus. Is Jesus going to agree with them? Are they all of equal importance? 
And Jesus doesn't let us down. He surprises us. He says, yes, there is a hierarchy to the commandments. There are commandments that are more important than other commandments. And I'm going to tell you which ones are most important. The most important commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love neighbor. These acts stand at the heart of the human life. This is what we were created for, to receive and give love to both God and to one another. And part of that love is loving God with our minds. Love and study are tied up together. In the matters of intellectual reflection then, our efforts should serve the ends of love. So when you go to school, do you see it as an act of love? When you read a book, I know we have filmmakers here, when you watch a movie, listen to a podcast, read a newspaper, anything that engages the life of the mind, do you see it as an act of love? See, in the spiritual discipline of study, both the heart and the mind are intertwined. One of the people who's taught me most about this is a man named Jonathan Walton. Jonathan's from Atlanta. He grew up in Stone Mountain. And when I was at the seminary, he was doing a PhD. He's a brilliant academic, social ethicist. He just was named the eighth president at Princeton Seminary. And in 2018, he came out with a book that I think, to my mind, is probably one of the best books about reading the Bible for a general audience. It's called A Lens of Love, Reading the Bible in Its World for Our World. So he's trained as a scholar, as a social ethicist. So he's concerned not just what the text says, but what difference does the text make in the world? How do people interpret it? What do they do in response to it? And in the book, he examines how the Bible has been misused throughout human history to justify slavery, to justify colonization, the subjugation of women. I could go on. The problem is, he says, if love stands at the center of what Jesus says we should be about, why is the Bible used to oppress people? That's what he comes, he says, when we read the Bible, we need to read it with a lens of love. How is this text helping me love God and love people? How can the life of the mind, intellectual reflection, serve the ends of love? Our thoughts, our thinking, our study, our reflection should serve us loving God and loving people. That means in the process of learning to love, we're going to need to learn intellectual humility. Why? Because if we're not intellectually humble, we'll think we already have all the right answers. And anyone that disagrees with us is wrong. But being humble opens us up to others to one another, to learning new things. And we come to this realization that absolute intellectual certainty is unattainable in this life. As I was standing in front of those stacks of books in the basement seminary library, I realized 
There are three more floors of all these books above me. And I'm not great at math, but I do a little calculation. And I realize that if I spend all the waking moments of the rest of my life reading, I will not be able to read all of these books. I'm trying to find certainty to answer my questions. But I realize I cannot get all of the information available into my mind, and therefore certainty is unattainable. And so that brought me to a place of humility. To admit that there are times I might be wrong. To be humble. I love the warning by H, the theologian H. Richard Niebuhr, who said, we must fight their falsehood with our truth, but we must also fight the falsehood in our truth. Let me read that again. We must fight their falsehood with our truth, but we must also fight the falsehood in our truth. That's humility. Loving God with our minds means having the courage to change our incorrect beliefs, to admit that we might be or are wrong. This means we are in trouble if we only study and think about things we already agree with. Here's a couple, couple test questions for you. Do you only listen to news channels that you already agree with? Do you read books that challenge your assumptions? When you encounter an argument that you don't agree with, can you restate the argument in such a way that the person saying that argument would say, yes, that's what I believe? Or do you build a straw man out of it? We need to be courageous intellectually to challenge ourselves to engage with those ideas and people that we may not agree with. I came from a very conservative theological background. And so when people heard where I was going to seminary, they said, why would you go to such a liberal place? And I remember thinking to myself, why would I go somewhere where I'm going to go, they're just going to teach me what I already believe? I want to go somewhere to be challenged, to have new experiences. I want to meet people that are different than me. I want to experience and engage the diversity of the world and the mystery of God. I'll be honest with you. Probably the person that most impacted me was a professor at the university who was an atheist. But he took the time to hold me accountable for my beliefs, to challenge me to sharpen my faith. And I had to learn to study, not as an act of trying to achieve certainty, but as an act of love. You shall love the Lord your God all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. So how can we study with love? One of the classic books about reading comes from the professor Mortimer Adler. He wrote a book titled, how to read a book. <laughs> but I think it stands for how to watch a movie, how to listen to a podcast. He has this three-step process. He says, first, you must understand the book. What is the author saying? Second, you must interpret the book. What does the author mean? And third, you must evaluate the book. 
Is the author right or wrong or somewhere in the middle? And he sets kind of a high goal. He says sometimes this will take reading a work two to three times. But I think, if I might be so audacious, I think Professor Adler is missing a step. G.K. Chesterton was once asked what book he would want if he was stranded on a deserted island. Without missing a beat, Chesterton responded, well, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding, of course. See, Adler lists out a three-step process, but I want to add a fourth step. We must understand, we must interpret, we must evaluate, but then we must apply. Application is important. This is the so what question. What difference does this make with my life? How should I respond? After three years of seminary, I'd spent a lot of time in the library reading and writing and thinking, but there was something missing. At the time, someone introduced me to the philosopher and theologian who's from Copenhagen, Denmark, named Soren Kierkegaard. He lived in the 19th century, time of Christendom. If you were born in Europe, you were considered a Christian. You were assumed to be a Christian. And Kierkegaard was kind of a, a missionary to Christendom, as one book calls it. And he challenges that assumption. He says this, your Christianity isn't where you're born. It's how you respond. It's what you do with your life. And Kierkegaard loved to teach with parables. And he told this great parable. He said, imagine the person you love is living in a far and distant country. And one day you receive a letter from your beloved. But the problem is that the letter is written in a language you do not know. You see, your beloved wants to kind of keep it a secret. And there's a request that your beloved has for you to do one thing. But the problem is it's in another language. So you go and you, you get a dictionary. You get word studies. You get a grammar. And you begin to translate the letter. And what you discover in the letter. And Kierkegaard never says what the one thing is. Although I think he has Matthew 22 in the back of his mind. Your beloved asks you to do one thing. But you get obsessed about the letter. You get obsessed about thinking about it. So you go out and you buy more dictionaries, more word studies, more grammars, and you think more and more about the letter, but you never do the one thing it asks you to do. And he says, if someone came in and observed this situation, they might ask, do you really love your beloved? Because you're caught up obsessively thinking about it, but you're missing the exact point of this letter that you would respond to it, that you would do the one thing. And so it's no surprise that Kierkegaard says that the Bible is God's love letter to the world. He's making the same point Jesus is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because God first loved you. And I think we should all think about that. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you have loved us in Jesus Christ, this great love letter to the world. I pray that we might meditate, think about, discern that great message 
but not sit on our hands. We might get up and respond to it, live lives of love, loving you and loving our neighbors as ourselves. In your name we pray. You've been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.